The Anxious Bench by the Reverend John Williamson Nevin Chapter 5 The bench vindicated on insufficient grounds. 1. As bringing the sinner to a decision. 2. As involving him in a committal. 3. As giving force to his purpose. 4. As a penitential discipline. 5. As necessary for the purposes of instruction. 6. As opening the way for prayer. In view of such disastrous action as we have now been called to contemplate, we ask on what grounds the use of the anxious bench is vindicated. These should be of great force to counterbalance the weight of mischief with which it is attended. No divine appointment is pleaded in its favor. We could not suppose for a moment, indeed, that any appointment of God could be associated with such had influences and tendencies as are found to hold in connection with this invention. But it is not pretended to make it of scriptural authority. It is vindicated on other grounds, with variable argument to suit the occasion. These, however, are by no means satisfactory. 1. It serves, we are told, to bring awakened sinners to a decision. They are disposed to avoid this. They halt between two opinions. They should not be allowed to leave the sanctuary in this state. The gospel calls for a present determination. It is well, therefore, to shut them up to that point. This is done by the anxious bench. This sounds well. But what is it that the sinner decides when he rises and goes forward to the anxious seat? He is encouraged to come, singing, I'll go to Jesus, though in my sin, hath like a mountain rose. I know his courts I'll enter in, whatever may oppose. Is this the decision which the movement really involves? Then it is the same thing with conversion. The resolution of the prodigal carried into effect when out of a deep sense of his poverty and misery he arose and went to his father. And so much as this the considerations by which he is urged to come forward would seem to imply. But when the point is pressed, we learn that no such extravagant supposition is entertained. Coming to the anxious bench is not coming to Christ. The sinner seated upon it is unconverted still, hangs still between Christ and the world, and may still go away halting between two opinions as fully as if he had not come out in this way at all. What shall we say of such a decision, a decision that decides nothing? The apostles, we are told, insisted on men's coming to the point at once in the business of religion, and we should do the same thing. So certainly we should. But is this such a point as the apostles were accustomed to press? When Peter found the multitude awakened on the day of Pentecost, he called them to an immediate decision. But what was the form in which this was to be done? Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, cried the preacher. Come, roars the modern revival monger, pleasing himself with the thought of being like Peter on the day of Pentecost. Come, humble sinner, 
in whose heart a thousand thoughts revolve. Come, come without delay, this night, this moment, come, to the altar or to the anxious bench. Alas for the parallel. If it be conversion to come out in this way, let the thing be openly affirmed at once. But if not, why mock us by calling it a decision and pretending to find precedence for it in the Acts of the Apostles? 2. But the ground now is shifted. Sinners are not brought exactly to a decision by the anxious bench, but they are brought at least to a committal. And this is considered to be of great account. Let them go away from the house of God without this, and there will be a reason to fear that their seriousness may evaporate before the next meeting. We should take advantage of their feelings when they are excited and engage them, if possible, to take a step by which they shall feel themselves committed to the world as well as to their own consciences in favor of religion. This is done when we get them out to the anxious bench. They bind themselves by this act to seek the Lord. The thing is known and talked about. They feel themselves bound, and their shame and pride come in to fortify the higher influences by which they are urged to go forward and not draw back unto perdition. Lo and jejun must be the conception of religion which can allow such a view as this to be entertained. It is well indeed that sinners should bind themselves by an inward resolution to seek the Lord while he is to be found, and it is right that they should be urged to do this on all suitable occasions. But such a resolution, to be of any account, must proceed from intelligent reflection and inward self-possession, and it can have no salutary force except as entertained in the consciousness of God's presence and God's authority to the exclusion, comparatively, of all inferior references. Nothing can be more irrational than to think of making the sinner's feelings in this case a trap for his judgment and then holding him fast by the force of an outward bond. The circumstances in which he is urged to put his soul thus under pledge are the very worst that could well be imagined for the purpose. Volney, in the storm at sea, was not more fully at the mercy of an element beyond himself. Deathbed resolutions, notoriously hollow as they are, embrace just as much rational freedom. The vows of a drunkard, in ordinary cases, are but little respected. But here, where excitement, sympathy, and passion combine to wrap all spirits in a moral tornado till the brain is found to reel with the bewildering, intoxicating element that surrounds it, the greatest account is made of such engagements, and every art is employed to secure them, even from hysterical girls if need be, that they may feel themselves bound subsequently to follow on to know the Lord. A large proportion of such resolutions must necessarily be without inward force, and now the sense of the committal is indeed required to sustain the solemn step which has been taken. But what is this in such circumstances 
but the substitution of low worldly references as far as it prevails for that consciousness of the soul's relations to God in which alone, as we have already seen, any resolution of this sort can truly stand. So far exactly as the anxious person may be swayed by the thought of consistency, credit, or any similar interest in continuing to seek religion, the true posture of conviction is wanting altogether. How can ye believe, said Christ, which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only. A reigning respect to the authority of the world under any form disqualifies the soul for transacting honestly in the great interest of religion. In a multitude of instances, these committals are followed by a reaction in the minds of those who are drawn into them of the most unhappy kind. They fall back openly to the world, but not without a feeling of humiliation and spite in the recollection of their own weakness, and their state subsequently is worse than it was before. In the case of many others, the committal has its force, no doubt, in carrying them forward till they get fully into the church, and their profession possibly may have the same power to hold them to the forms of religion afterwards even to the end of life. But it is for the most part a false hope to which they are thus conducted. The church, in this way, is filled with hypocrites and not with true converts. 3. But the ground may be slightly shifted again, so as to present the measure, not in the light exactly of a bond upon the sinner's soul, but as a prop and support rather to his weakness. A first step often costs more than a hundred that follow. A world of hesitation, in certain circumstances, is surmounted by a single effort to move. The sinner, when first awakened, shrinks from making his case known, and his concern, pent up in his own bosom, is not likely to be as strong and active as it would be if it could appear in an outward form. Let him come then to the altar or the anxious bench. The man who signs a temperance pledge finds his resolution to be sober supported by the act. Hundreds of drunkards have been enabled in this way to reform completely, who without this help would have had no power to rise. This is plausible, but it will not bear examination. A first step is of great account in religion, but only where it springs freely from the will, which it cannot do without reflection and self-command. An outward engagement to seek the Lord can be of no use without a certain measure of intelligent conviction at work within, and where this is present, it will not be difficult to secure whatever may be proper or desirable in the other form, without having recourse to an expedient so full of danger. It is a part of the spiritual policy of the Romish church to entice those who are serious by means of vows into positions from which they cannot draw back with the view of thus establishing them in the purpose of a religious life. But we all know how little is gained in the Romish church by this policy. It is true indeed that a drunkard may sign the temperance pledge 
even when he is drunk, and afterwards keep it. But there is a vast difference between the object of the temperance pledge and that which it is proposed to reach by means of the anxious bench. The one is fully within the compass of human will and human strength, the other is beyond it entirely. The one may be mastered in the flesh, the other cannot be approached or understood except in the spirit. In any case, however, vows and pledges that spring from excitement rather than reflection are to be considered fanatical, and as such neither rational nor free. And though in certain cases men may seem to be strengthened and supported by them in the prosecution of good ends belonging to a lower sphere, they are ever to be deprecated in the sphere of religion as tending only to delusion and sin. 4. The measure is sometimes recommended on the ground that it is well suited to humble and break the sinner's pride. The carnal mind is not willing to stoop to the shame of the cross in the view of a sinful world. It is difficult at the same time to bring it to a clear sight of this fact in its own case. But the anxious bench reduces the question to a present point. If unwilling to stoop to the self-denial involved in coming to this, how can the awakened person be willing to do anything that religion requires? Thus the pride and wickedness of the heart in relation to the gospel are forced home upon the individual's consciousness. And when at length, under the pressure of this conviction, he goes forward and joins himself openly with the anxious, his pride is prostrated, and he is no longer ashamed to appear earnestly concerned for the salvation of his soul. But it is easy to see that on the same principle, any test which might be imagined for the same purpose could be justified with equal ease. The sinner might be required to sit at the church door, clothed in sackcloth and ashes, begging an interest in the prayers of all the entering worshipers, or to travel through all the aisles of the church itself on his knees in token of his humiliation. If unwilling to bend to such a requirement, how should he be counted truly in earnest with respect to the main point? In this way, the whole system of Romish penance might challenge our respect. In truth, however, no account is to be made of any such outward demonstration as a test or token of the sinner's feelings in the particular view now considered. Popish penances involve commonly no spiritual mortification and have no tendency whatever to reconcile men to the reproach of Christ. The sinner may be brought to lick the dust, if need be, under the pressure of an alarmed conscience, without a particle of that inward humiliation before God which the idea of religion demands. So it is possible, and no doubt exceedingly common, for persons to take their seat on the anxious bench with very little, if any, feeling at all of this sort where the idea prevails that there is religion to some extent in the very act itself of coming out in this way, hundreds may easily be engaged to do so, just as under parallel circumstances they might be engaged to flagellate themselves publicly through the streets 
without the least benefit in the way of a conquest over their carnal pride. In some cases, the occupancy of the bench may indeed be attended with the wholesome discipline of humiliation in the way supposed, preparing the spirit to follow Jesus without the camp bearing his reproach. But it is as certain that the same result has been secured, in some cases, by the penitential castigations of the Church of Rome or the willful self-inflictions of fanaticism in its worst forms. Where the soul is already prepared for spiritual humiliation, either the scourge or the bench, if duly accredited to the mourner's conscience as the power of God for the purpose, may serve as an occasion to promote this end. This is no reason, however, why we should have recourse to one or the other in seeking to advance the interests of religion. There is no direct adaptation in either to produce evangelical humiliation. They are suited rather, as has been shown already in the case of the bench, to blind the soul to the true nature of such humiliation by fixing its attention unduly on outward references and outward acts and challenging it to a willful more than to a willing service. It were well to remember here what the Apostle says most profoundly on the subject of all such will-worship with its show of wisdom at the close of the second chapter of his epistle to the Colossians. 5. But again, the use of the anxious bench is vindicated as affording an opportunity for meeting the case of awakened sinners with suitable instruction. When they are called out in this way, they become known. They can be addressed collectively and conversed with individually. What they need is particular instruction suited to their particular states. It is not by dashing water in a large way over a congregation of empty bottles that a minister can expect to get a few of them filled. If he would labor to any purpose, he must come down and take each bottle separately by the neck and pour the water in according to the capacity of its mouth. But when we look a little into the matter, we shall find this object of instruction reduced to a perfect farce. There are two ways in which the occupants of an anxious bench may be addressed. What is said may be spoken to all at once, or they may be taken one by one in succession. If there are too many for the minister to manage himself in this way, he may engage others to take part with him in the work. This must be considered the method most congenial with the idea of the system. For the object, we are told, is to make instruction particular and specific. And how can this be accomplished so well as by taking each case separately? It is customary accordingly, when the anxious are fairly in their place, for the process of instruction to commence in this way. The minister comes to one, the first on the bench, and bending forward proceeds in a low voice to ask a question or two with regard to the person's spiritual condition. These are answered commonly in the most general and confused way. Then follows a short exhortation, for the most part, in the same general strain. The whole conference may not last more than some three or four minutes, for there are a number to be conversed with. 
and regard must be had at the same time to the patience of the congregation. So the ceremony passes forward to a second, and then to a third, and so on, till all have their turn. And this is called spiritual instruction. If a physician were seen handling a dozen of patients in the same style, the spectacle might well call for derision. But after all, it would be no such mummery as we have here. One of the most difficult and delicate functions a minister is called to perform is that of giving counsel to awakened sinners. None calls for more caution and discrimination. It is hard to ascertain correctly the state of the spiritual patient and hard to suit the prescription wisely to his particular wants. It is so where there may be the fullest opportunity for free, calm investigation in the family visit or in a private interview. But here, where all surrounding influences conspire to complicate the difficulty to the greatest extent in the midst of commotion without and commotion within, it is pretended to dispose of a dozen such cases, perhaps in the course of half an hour. And to make the matter worse, if the number of the anxious be considerable, this, that, and the other helper is called in, some crude exhorter perhaps, some stripling student just starting on his way towards the ministry, or some forward novice, himself still in the swaddling clothes of the new birth, to take part in the solemn ghostly work under the same form. And is it possible that sensible men, in the fair use of their senses, can fail to be struck with the absurdity of such a process? The only fair parallel to it in the medical sphere would be the mockery of three or four raw practitioners going the rounds of a hospital and administering to fifty cases of diversified diseases within the same time as many doses of Thompson's mixture number six. In the latter case, the thing would be counted and called quackery of the first degree and it is hard to see why it should go under any softer appellation in the former. The only difference might seem to be in the solemnity of the interests involved in the two circles of action. The Thompsonian tampers only with the life of the body, while the spiritual practitioner plays blindly with the precious life of the soul. If profitable for instruction at all, then, the anxious bench must be made subservient to this end in a different way. Considering the circumstances of the case, the only rational course with a company thus brought forward is to spend the few minutes that can be devoted to them in counsels and exhortations addressed to them collectively. Let it not be said that such instructions must needs lack point. The cases of the truly awakened are always sufficiently near alike to admit of a large amount of most pointed and pertinent direction in the same form for all. And one who is truly a well-instructed scribe in the gospel will be able to address an anxious bench to much more purpose in this way than if he were to pass round directing a few remarks to each one separately. But is it necessary to call them out from the congregation for this purpose? The same truths may just as well be presented to inquirers 
as included in the general audience, and it might reasonably be expected in the case of the truly serious with much better effect. But is it not desirable, we are asked, to have inquirers together by themselves? No doubt there may be an advantage in this, but let it be with fitting time and place, not under circumstances which can hardly fail to obstruct and defeat all the purposes that should be aimed at in the ease. The anxious bench is of no account in any view as a help to instruction, and it is not hard to perceive that as a general thing, where it is used, this does not form in reality its main recommendation in the eyes of its friends. It may be convenient to advocate the use of the measure on this ground, and consistency will require always some show of improving it accordingly. The anxious, in one way or another, must be instructed and directed after they have come out. But just at this point, there is apt to appear a sort of giving way in the general pressure of the occasion, as though the main object of it had already been reached in the coming out itself. It often happens that a very short exhortation is allowed to wind up the whole scene, or it becomes evident that the conversation with the anxious is protracted amid the flagging interest of the congregation with mechanical rather than with living force. This, where order and sobriety still continue to assert their proper rights in the feelings of the people. Where that is not the case, it will be contrived to keep up the excitement still, in connection with the show of instruction, in such way that this last shall come but little into view, while all stress is laid upon the first. The anxious then are encouraged to weep aloud, cry out, and wring their hands. Now they are enveloped in the loud tones of some stimulating spiritual song. Then there is prayer which soon becomes as loud, commencing perhaps with a single voice, but flowing quickly into a sea of tumultuating sounds, from which no sense can be extracted even by the keenest ear. The mourners besiege the altar, pell-mell, kneeling, or it may be floundering flat upon the floor, and all joining in the general noise. Then may be heard perhaps the voice of the preacher, shouting some commonplace word of exhortation which nobody hears or regards, while at different points vague, crude expostulations and directions are poured into the ears of the struggling supplicants by brethren now suddenly transformed into spiritual counselors who might be at a loss themselves to explain at any other time a single point in religion. In due time, one and another are brought through, and thus new forms of disorder, shouting, clapping, etc., are brought into play. In this way, the interest of the occasion, such as it is, may be kept up till a late hour. But who will pretend to say that instruction has been regarded or intended as a leading object in any part of the process? 6. Lastly, it is said that the anxious should be called out in order that they may be made the subjects of prayer. They need the prayers of the church, 
and the church, it may be supposed, has a heart to plead with God in their behalf. But how shall this be if they are not known? By the anxious bench, they are brought into view, piteously seeking an interest in the prayers of God's people, whose bowels of compassion cannot fail to be stirred by the spectacle. This might seem to be the great object in the case of such methodistical displays as we have just had under observation. But scenes of this sort have no tendency to stimulate the spirit of prayer. They form an element, unfriendly, if not absolutely fatal, to the true idea of devotion. This is evident generally from a certain character of irreverence, often grossly profane, that it is sure to put itself forward in such circumstances, in proportion exactly to the strength of the reigning excitement. And in any case, there is reason to believe that more is lost than gained for the anxious, as it regards this interest, by the commotion necessarily connected with their movement to the anxious bench. It is a suspicious kind of prayer at best that can be engaged in such circumstances only by the sight of its objects, theatrically paraded to produce effect, without the power of a more general interest. But it is not necessary that the awakened should be unknown in the church to which they belong. They may be discovered without the aid of the anxious bench and can be carried so upon the hearts of God's people in the sanctuary and in the closet with an interest far more deep and active than any that is produced in the other way. I know of no other ground than those which have now been considered on which the use of the anxious bench can be vindicated with any plausible defense. And as these separately taken have no force, so neither can they be allowed to weigh anything collectively against the condemnation in which the system is properly involved.